Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 46. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and today's special guest is comedy juggler Greg Frisbee. That's right, entertainment with a new spin. But before we get to Greg, let's thank our sponsors, starting with sponsor number one, Numero Uno. For my Spanish friends, it's the IJA, the International Jugglers Association. Information about how to join the IJA can be found at juggle.org. And of course, you can find out information about this year's annual festival in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I'm your festival director, Dan Holzman, and the dates are July 10th through the 16th. Join me and all my friends there for a great event, juggling, history, fun, and so much more. Hey, let's thank our second sponsor. It was hard to get, but I got Ring Dama. That's right, the exciting new skill toy that you wear like a ring, but play like a toy. They're my new sponsor because I'm also the inventor of the Ring Dama. Everyone knows that, but they also know the Ring Dama is lots of fun. So pick yourself up a Ring Dama at www.ringdama.com. Okay, I've thanked the IGA. I've thanked Ring Dama. Let me thank my engineer, Karen Holzman. Now drop everything and get ready for Greg Frisbee. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, a good friend and a special guest. This is podcast number 46, and my special guest is Mr. Greg Frisbee. Hello, Greg. Hey there, Dan. How's everything going? It's going very well. I'm here in Pinole with my wife, who's my engineer. Where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm uh, just south of Boston. Currently, I'm in Kingston, Massachusetts, is where I'm residing. And uh, what's the scene out there? Are there juggling shows? Is there street work? What kind of work is out there in, in that area? There is. I mean, there's a lot of local shows as we head into spring and summer here. There's a lot of summer camps and, and things like that that are, are popping up. There is also a, a fairly good street scene in Boston with Faneuil Hall Marketplace and then also um, around different street venues around the city. Now, I've heard of Faneuil Hall. What is their policy? I know they're always changing. Can you use amplification? Yeah, currently you can use amplification. You have to keep it within a certain volume range to not blow out any of the stores or vendors there. I, before I came on, I, I just came on board last summer because, as you know, I was living in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So when I moved out here, they had started allowing amplification again. But I guess uh, before I came in last year, there were some issues with the marketplace changing rules, and they weren't really sure where things were at. And my favorite rule that sometimes a venue will institute is no asking for money. Like, oh, you can put your hat out. And if people want to come forward and put something in, exactly. But you can't you can't actually ask for money, which kind of uh, defeats the point. Yeah, and I degree. think that was uh, that was one of the things that they were talking about implementing before I came on board. I think the year or two previous, they were talking about having like a specific hat pitch that you had to use, mm. and then not ask for a specific denomination on your show. Uh, and there was all sorts of things that they were trying to do, and there was quite a bit of, of rebellion against some of these new things they were trying to implement. And I'm glad that they didn't really fully take hold. I mean, they did make some changes, but... We know how important the hat pass is and how important it is to personalize it. Do you think that some people are too hardcore and that they're, they make people feel pressured? through their hat pitch? Is that the problem? Oh, absolutely. I think that that happens worldwide. I mean, certain acts certainly go for the hard pitch, the hard sell. Sometimes they'll hat multiple times within the show. Right. The hat pitch is almost its own routine of your show, and you need to make it funny and engaging, but not sound like you're begging or over-pushing forward or too needy. And I think maybe at some point, somewhere along the lines, the Faneuil Hall management, as well as other management around the the country or the world even you know, sometimes sees it as like, oh, you're kind of pushing a little bit too hard there. You're kind of pushing for this amount too much and people are starting to complain or feel uncomfortable about it. Or Yeah, but it's tough. I mean, you've seen a lot of great shows. Like if you do a great show and go, okay, folks, if you liked my show, just give me some money and support me. People don't, yeah. <laughs> they don't buy into that necessarily. Well, it's interesting because I mean, there are some performers who do that as well, where they're just like, hey, I'm not going to tell you what to give me. I'm not sure. going to go into a hard sell. Hopefully you know how this works and I'm just going to leave it up to you. And, and there are some people who do very well with that approach. Yeah. And some people use the approach sort of like I'm on a journey. You help me get through college or my plan is to get married in a, an exotic location. And if I can raise enough money, my partner and I will live happily forever on just your sure. $5 donation, something like that. <laughs> Well, I, the one thing I don't like is when people use their hardships yes. of life or 
challenges of life to, to kind of guilt people. Like that's, I think that's where the guilty part comes in. It was like, hey, you know, I have a young child. Help yes. pay for my cost of my child. Don't you see that it's very difficult? And, and there are people who sometimes go that approach. And it's like, oh, I did very well in the hat. It's just like, well, are they paying you because you did a good show? Or are they paying you because they feel somehow guilted into giving you a 5 or $10 bill because you begged about your child being hungry? And I think it's tough as you get older because I think – as a younger person, like when you're in your 20s, people see the street performer as sort of a, not rebellious, but an adventurous spirit who's traveling the world with his backpack and earning money as he goes until he gets a real job. I think sometimes they see an older person, they're kind of like, why are you still out here on the street? Do you ever get that sense? Sure. And, and there are some people, I mean, the fact is, I mean, there are career street performers out there that yeah. do very well and make a good living doing it. And it, it's a lifestyle choice for many people. You know, some people use the street performing as a stepping stone of like, hey, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to work my show. I'm going to work the streets. It's a, it's a very tried and true sense of, you know, I'm going to use this as my stepping stone yeah. to the next thing to break into fairs or corporate events or whatever venue you want to go down. But at the same time, there are people who are just like, well, I've, I've chosen this certain lifestyle for myself that I can come and go as I please go where I want, make good money, make a good living. There are just people who would say, hey, I'm going to be you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and still do this because this is who I am. Yeah, we know those people on the circuit. It becomes part of their identity. And obviously, I think as a street performer, the amount of sort of business side of it becomes less. Well, I don't know about that. I, I think that even as a career street performer, there's still a business side to it where it's like there's still a show structure. There, I mean, Sure. A lot of these street performers who are career street performers, that they, they still go off and maybe do the Busker Festival, or they know which cities work well for their show, or which venue will work, or my show works the best at this time of day. My show works best at dusk because I do the fire and it looks good this way. So I, I still think there's still a business sense around the structure of how they do what they do. I'm just talking about the idea of, like you're saying, if you're doing individual shows, you're trying to book whether it's parties or corporates or libraries, someone on the street, like here at, at Pier 39, which is our local pitch here in San Francisco, basically there's a meeting once a month. Right. You get your scheduled spots, and you can at least have that as sort of your basis or your backbone of that month's work to some degree. Right. And Fenio Hall has the same thing, different structure, but once a month, you know, you, you still have to audition to be part of the Fenio Hall actual street performer program out there. Yeah. Once a month, they still do the scheduling for the following month. So there's a similar structure in, in that sense. In that sense, you know, certain places like Pier 39, Fenio Hall, and I know some other venues around the country, there is a, still a certain structure and a certain guidelines and rules that you have to follow. Even if you were to go out and do the street, you, you look at Fisherman's Wharf or the streets of Boston or Cambridge, Massachusetts, they still have a permit system. You know, yeah. there's still a, a, a list of rules that like, hey, if you're going to do street performing, here's the rules you have to follow. Your sound can't be above this decibel. You can't do fire or you can't do danger props or you have to have this much of a perimeter around you if you're throwing things in the air. I always think that's funny about the danger props. Because realistically, I think the biggest danger prop is probably the giraffe unicycle. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. Probably that's definitely one of them. But they, I think people see they see the torches or the knives, and to them those are the right. danger implements. Even though any competent juggler who keeps a good safety distance with the knives or the torches, that would be hard to injure someone. Even though I've seen torch wicks fly off in midair into the audience. Sure. Yeah, I've I've seen some fire issues over the years. I've seen some. Things that have happened with people doing, you know, a poor fire blast where they lit their face on fire. It's just like things like that do happen. Do you see the one where the guy was like in the kiddie pool, like in the middle of a basketball halftime, and he was blowing fire and it caught himself on fire? I did not see that. <laughs> you have to check that one out on YouTube. It's like, how many things could this guy do wrong yeah. in a fire, fire blowing situation? But at the same time, it's just, I mean, I mean, there are cities like fire is banned from Boston, which is, I think is unfortunate because it's like, you're performing on brick. You know, you're not going to be able to burn the brick down where the performing venues are. There's no real, like, danger of anything burning. Well, Renaissance fairs, you can understand, because Renaissance fairs are like hay and wood. So something like that. But I think it's just the idea of fire is scary to the venues. And also, obviously, indoors. When you used to be able to use fire, basically you'd say, like, well, we'll just do it. We'll get permission later. 
Oh yeah, yeah, which is weird, right? It's just I mean, I've done some of those venues where I performed at colleges or even different venues where there's like, we'll just kind of turn the sprinkler system off for you during <laughs> the show. And it's just like, well, okay, I, I guess. <laughs> you know? I, I was never one of those guys. There's always those like, it's better to get what uh, permission or forgiveness afterwards than permission beforehand or something. Uh, I'd rather get permission beforehand. I'm not a big one for surprising the clients, you know, with right. fire or right. something like that, something unexpected. I guess ever since the what was it, Great White, that band? We had the terrible tragedy with the fire in the crowd. In Rhode Island here, yeah. In Rhode Island, exactly. That's your area. Yeah. It really affected every sort of venue that used to allow fire. Oh, Especially absolutely. And, and I performed, actually, out here in Rhode Island. I mean, I was living in California at the time, but I, I came out here soon after that happened and did a, a gig with Marcus Raymond out here in Rhode Island. That was fairly soon after that Rhode Island fire happened, and... We were performing outside at this venue. I think it was like the Taste of Rhode Island or sure. something. And um, they were just like, you can't do fire anywhere here because of what happened. It's just like, well, okay. <laughs> well, I think in that case, it's more just the reference. And it'd be hard to even make any jokes or something about the fire. or It just would bring back bad memories. Right. More than well, safety even now issues. people still talk about it. I mean, it definitely you know had a lasting impact on the area here because people still bring that that situation up. Well, I mean, once again, if you look back and you see the lack of safety considerations and using pyrotechnics indoors in that such a small venue. Well, with I mean, the the, the main problem with that venue that happened was that they had like exposed you know, like soundproofing. Yeah, on the ceiling. Foam directly above the stage. It's like. Okay, like that just doesn't seem very smart. Well, we've all been in situations in entertainment where you walk into a a situation, you're like, they set it up like this? Right. You know, as far as the the logistics. So, you know, they don't always have the greatest planning in show business events, to be honest. Well, you would also think that if you're going to go into a venue, if you're going to perform pyrotechnics or fire or even like a little explosive popper like some people do or whatever, you would think that you would know like, hey, I'm going to perform on stage. Like maybe it's not a good idea based on what I see to do this. Well, I think it's sometimes even with like us as performers, the risk element, it's easy to ignore it. Like let's say you're doing shows and you're just out there on the street. Sometimes I think we feel invincible to some degree and we kind of, you start cutting corners. You start taking chances and usually you get away with it. But sometimes, you know, something like this happens and then you pay the price. But I know yeah. myself, I've been in situations where I'm like, ooh, this is a little sketchy, but then you pull it off anyways. Right. But then don't afterwards, you'd be like, hey, if I'm going to go into this venue again or do something like this again, like I'm going to put this in my clause or I'm going to put this. I mean, that's how most of your uh, amendments to your contracts tend to happen based on a, a, an experience that you had where you had to change it. Right. And I imagine if you're a rock band and you have someone in charge of the pyrotechnics that that person should be competent enough to check out the safety situations in every venue and not just do the same thing no matter where he goes. You you would think. You would think, yes. Hey, let's enough about that. Let's get back to the story of Greg Frisbee. Let's go way back. Okay. Now, obviously, the name Greg Frisbee is quite unusual. Where did you get the name Greg? <laughs> <laughs> A little joke there. Now, now, Frisbee is, of course, your real family name. That is my real family name. I, I remember growing up, my dad used to always have this joke. He's like, you know, we come from a long line of Frisbees. I'm a Frisbee. Your grandpa, he's a bit of a yo-yo, but... <laughs> right, right. But there's no connection to obviously, the, or not obviously, but there's no connection to the actual Frisbee flying disc in your family. No, I mean, I'm sure somewhere along the line, I mean, the, the Frisbee family name has actually been in America before the main, like the pilgrims came over. They were, the Frisbee name was one of the first settlers here in the U.S. It's been around for forever, since uh, the early, early 1600s. Hmm. And so the Frisbee name has been all around New England, all around the East Coast. So the Frisbee pies is kind of where the name frisbee originally it was like the toy came from the frisbee pie plate company it was the pie tin that they would the throw around tin. exactly yeah. and so they were based out of new england so I'm, I'm sure somewhere along the line my family name is connected to that i've never gotten a check in the mail or anything over it but, uh, <laughs> but i'm sure people ask you quite a bit about the connection and is that your real name yeah well because it has such a connection to that iconic toy now that it's just people like, wow, what a, what a creative, what a unique name to have a name like Frisbee. And of course, you're a juggler or a performer with a name like that. I like your uh, your slogan, comedy entertainment with a new spin. Yeah, I think I actually have you to thank for that a little bit. I think we used to brainstorm together on my show about 10 or so years ago, and you were helping me with some tweaking of my show and consulting. And I think we, we said, hey, maybe a, 
how about a slogan? And we kind of like we kind of riffed on a bunch of different ideas. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you have a name like Frisbee, so it's good when things fit together like that. I think it gives you like the branding, which is something you're so good at, is sort of the branding of your act. Yeah, I, I really think we talked about the business sense. I think if you're going to be in a business, like th there is a certain branding that goes with that. I, at one point along the lines, I tried to make the decision that I was going to go into fairs and festivals, and I was going to kind of focus on that market. I tried to brand things within that direction where I thought, like, oh, these are fun colors. These are, mm. you know, family show colors, which was like the, like the blues and the oranges and the colors that kind of stand out but also seem friendly and fun. And so I just thought I'd try to brand things in that way. And so everything about my show kind of started following a color scheme of like blue and yellow, blue and orange, things like that. You know, I started putting postcards together, the website together, and everything started following that kind of branding, and it kind of worked. Now, when you were young, uh, young Greg Frisbee, were you interested in, in entertainment or show business? How did the, the juggling bug and the entertainment bug get started with you? Well, that's interesting. I started off as actually a really shy kid. I actually started off doing magic and stuff as a as a kid, doing close-up magic. Didn't ever juggle until I was, I think, about 19. I did magic as a as a kid, as a hobby, and I, I did some card tricks, some coin tricks, things like that. And then when I, I graduated high school, and it was the summer of my 18th birthday, I started, at the time I lived in Boston back then as well, and, and I would hang around in Boston and Harvard Square and I saw some street performers out there, and, and there was something about the idea of watching these street magicians. I said, you know, I want to try that out. For some reason, it kind of called to me. I said, hey, I'm going to try this. And I went out to the streets of Harvard Square and tried a close-up magic show, and I think I sucked pretty badly. <laughs> Look back on it, I'm like, I have no idea how to do a show. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Like, I have a few card tricks that I can do. But there was something about it which was really cool, which was like, this is something... I want to know how to do this. I want to learn how to do it. This was back in 1993, I guess, 92, 93. Harvard Square was like a carnival out there during that time. I mean, there was four or five jugglers out there working. You had three or four magicians working, all within like a two-block radius. You know, you had puppeteers out there, street musicians. It was like a carnival every mm. weekend night. And it was so busy with foot traffic that it was hard for cars to even get through on weekend nights. It was just, and so there was something about that magical, it just felt magical to me, like a living carnival that just happened to be there. When I was starting to do magic, I'd sit around the end of the night and I would talk to some of the magicians who were out there. You had people like Sonny Holiday. Mm -hmm. I know that name. Peter Sauce, another magician yeah. that was out there at the time. And they would sit around with me at the end of the night and tell me what I did good and what I did bad and what I could do the next time I came out. And it was then that I met the gym show, Peter Panic. There was a guy the, named Mark the jugglers. Yeah. jugglers who were out there. I was like, man, I really want to have a bigger show than just like a doorway magic show. I'd like to try to learn how to juggle and do a circle show. And so I took basically the next two or so years just watching as many shows as I could, try to figure out how it worked. And that's when I learned how to juggle, learned how to eat fire. I had created an upside down tripod. I was doing an escape for a while. And You did a straightjack escape, an upside yeah. down straightjack escape. Yep. You know, it was, it was the summer of 95, I think, that I came back out with, like, I, I felt like I actually had some idea of what I was doing for a show. But, you know, it was still fairly in its infancy in, in terms of performing and stuff. And What kind of tips would you say you got from Peter Panic or the gym show? Did, you, did they give you anything specific that sticks out all these years later? The thing that I, I really think I learned in those early days was about how to structure the show in terms of maybe starting with simpler tricks or just having a build to toward that finale. It, it was just about the overall structure of like have each trick somehow be stronger or better than the previous trick and, you know, maybe have a volunteer bit before your finale bit. Like th there was just certain things that tended to. I saw certain structures that tended to kind of repeat and work for, for most people's shows, even though the shows were very different from each other. There were certain things that seemed to be consistent, you know, like pass the hat and do your hat pitch before your finale. And it was just a, a growing period for me. Like I say, it's, it's a build, right? It has, the show has to build. Exactly. Yeah, because what I see is for me is like my show is kind of built into chapters. Like each mm -hmm. routine is a separate chapter. And sometimes at the end of a chapter, someone go, I think I've seen enough and can walk away. Right. Where if it's structured like you're saying – you kind of keep it simple. It keeps building, building, building. Because the idea is you want to build the crowd so that right. the biggest crowd is there to see the final trick. And the final trick is good enough. Even if they just saw the final trick with your hat pass, they'll give you money. 
Right. So if you use too much up front and then it kind of peaks too early, no matter if your show is better than someone else's who doesn't have a – who has a better structure, the person with the better structure will probably make more money. Yeah, and again, I mean, there's – I don't think there's a – I mean, there is a formula that tends to work. I think Dave Aiken, checkerboard guy, mm-hmm. he published something or, or posted something about like here's the street performing kind of manifesto <laughs> structure type right. thing. Like, here's the rules. Here's some rules that tend to work. And there there used to be a resource, which was performers.net, and there was a bunch of articles about street performing and structure and building a show, and different people kind of contributed to it. And, and you, again, you'd see certain things. It's like, oh, everybody seems to mention this, or everybody seems to mention that. But there's still rules can always be broken. You know, there's always the new guy on the block who's like, hey, I'm going to do it my way. And for some reason, it works that way. There, there are some people who open with a finale-type trick, and then they'll still end with another finale-type trick. And there are some people who have, like, every routine in their show is somehow, like, finale quality. You know, you have people like Reese Thomas, who was out there, and, I mean, that guy, every single routine could be his closer. It's like Bob Bestman, too. He has, like, two big tricks that he put together as his finale. I find him a very good street performer. Yeah. Okay, now, but now I see here on my notes... That you went back to college and got a degree, though. So you graduated high school, you're starting yeah. to perform, but then you decide to go back to college. What's, what motivated that choice? My, my college degree is only a two-year mm. degree, which happened to take me almost three for a variety of reasons. You know, my dad had passed away during the time. and but it, So I have a two-year degree in communications, and, and so I got that over that time that I was also starting with the street performing stuff. And by the time I graduated with my two-year degree, my associate's degree, the original intent was that I was going to go on and get my bachelor's degree. But by the time I graduated, I, I think I got my degree in 95. By the time I graduated with that degree, I'd already kind of decided that I wanted to go down the path of performing. Like it was already kind of set for me in my head that whatever job I take, no matter what I do, I want to be working towards being a full-time performer. Now, in the media communications degree, did you pick up things like how to write a press release, how to contact the media for promotion that you find you use in a your career? A little bit. A little bit, sure. A lot of the stuff that I learned back then, I mean, it was really pre-internet, pre-digital right. technology. Really, I mean, the stuff that I learned is pretty dated now. But there was certain things that I learned just about some of the press release stuff was definitely talked about. There were speech classes, which I think also helped me break out of my shell because, like I said, I was a pretty shy kid. And so by taking those speech classes, taking some of these different acting classes, performing classes, journalism classes, like these all helped to set the groundwork of me breaking out of my shell to be more comfortable presenting in front of people. And like you were saying, it's changed so much, the promotional aspect. And when we started back in the early 80s, we would send a telegraph, Western Union. <laughs> Horse and rider would go out. I thought it was a hammer and chisel is what you were using. You're sending out like tablets that way. Well, we did. And for us, when we wanted to do torches, we had to wait for lightning to hit a tree. Oh, I thought you were doing the Ben Franklin approach with the, the kite and the, the key. The fire had not been invented yet. So when, when me and Barry started... <laughs> But no, we would do remember the days when you'd send out VHS tapes. Well, you know, speaking about promo, just to just to briefly interject here, I mean, even the promo tape length, sure, you send out yeah. VHS tapes. And I, I started that with VHS tapes as well. And then that switched to, you know, I went to CD-ROM, to DVD, to flash drive, and all of that has become obsolete at this point. And now it's like, it, it's online, you know, have it for streaming. And, you know, surely some people still ask for like, hey, do you have like a hard copy I can have? But everything changes so fast now and promo videos 10, 15 years ago, like your video could be 10 minutes. Then I went to six minutes. Then I went to four minutes. Now, if your promo video is longer than a minute and a half, like it just doesn't get watched. I like it now. They call it a sizzle reel. Oh, is that what they're calling it? A sizzle <laughs> reel. But then there are some acts, like if you look at the, the passing zone, which of course, you know, they're going after the higher end gigs. Right. Man, you look at their, their video, it's got six or seven minutes, eight minutes. But it's loaded with, with sellable content. Right. You know, celebrities and accomplishments. Where other people, like you have a four or five minute clip from your act. Right. You're like, forget about it. Well, and, and it's just it. It's like my promo video is about, I think I have it down to about five minutes now, but it's too much. And I'm actually in the process now. I mean, I haven't updated my video in probably three or four years at this point, but it's too long. Like I've even heard from clients saying, hey, like, we just need a shorter clip to kind of get a gist because it's like, you know, we don't have time to go through the entire thing. It's like, and you got to, you got to hit them pretty quickly within the first 30 seconds or so and say, Hey, I can do this, 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 this. And 
I, I guess it still has to be in kind of that commercial format. But for me, it's like, how can the client really get a, a gist of who you are and what you do within 30 seconds or a minute? Like, that's why I, I feel like you know, five minutes, I thought, was the perfect length where it's like, okay, I can show you, you know, 20 seconds of or 30 seconds of each of my routines that you're going to see in the show. I guess the idea now is, or I mean, I don't, people still don't do it. You see the sizzle reel, you see a bunch of acts and the ones you're interested in, you say, hey, I'd like to see your whole routine. I want to see the whole show I'd be buying. Sure. That's how I'd approach it. I'd want to see a bunch of sizzle reels, mm -hmm. but I would never buy an act based on a 90 second clip. Right. But that's what people are doing, you know, and, and, and. They're making these decisions based on the on the 60 seconds that they see. And also, it's so funny when you see a video that's very well edited, like has very fancy edits and cuts and flies in from the center and then it dissolves in 100 million pieces. Right. And, you know, the quality is very good and it gives you that MTV look. But you go, when I'm in your venue, I'm not going to be collapsing to a million pieces. I'm not going to be flipping in from the the corner. So all these fancy edits... They may make it seem as if my show is fast-paced and moving quickly. Right. But you're not going to get that in a live experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. I like the ones, too, who always say, he's the funniest act ever. But there's never a trace of humor in the video or on their website. Yeah, and I don't want to call out people's names. No. <laughs> and say anything negative about people. But you do see that a lot. Like, this is this is such and such best act of the year. It's like, based on, based on who? <laughs> like, you he's know, hilarious. Like based yeah. on one audience right. person you know he's he's the funniest act you'll ever see says okay. the performer's mom <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly hey now you did a you did a gig probably pretty early on that i never did was always curious about uh -huh. because back in my day this was sort of a gig was sort of a get, get your your feet in the game gig it was hostin bosch in japan Right, which started, it started as Holland Village back earlier. And yeah, and it's kind of the way it was for me too. Like I said, I, I started off in the 90s. I was just doing street performing. I was doing a lot of birthday parties early on. So it was, it was mostly like a weekend gig for me until I moved to California, which was in 2000 when I moved to California. It was only then, once I moved to California, that I really said, hey, I want to be a full-time performer. I'm going to take that leap. And, and I was doing everything I could to get the gigs. And it was in 2005 or six, I think, where I went to Haustenbosch in Japan. By then, I mean, Holland Village had already come and gone. And Holland Village was the where the idea started with doing like the Dutch theme park. And I guess that was really successful, which is why they built Haustenbosch, which I think struggled eternally to make money because it was such a huge theme park. But it wasn't the type of theme park where there was like rides. There's no roller coasters or anything at, at the theme park. It's like... You're basically going to a Dutch village where you can go experience like European cuisine or cheese shops or have this kind of go to the horse farm and things like that. And they would hire acts like us as the quote unquote European style street performer. And you'd go out there and you'd do, I think it was four shows a day, six days a week. It was like three months to the gig. It was a long, long term gig. Yeah, it's pretty long term gig. I think I was there. I went over twice. I went over two years in a row. I think the first time I went was like two and a half months. And then the second time I went was just under two months. I think it was seven weeks, six or seven weeks. And they're very strict there. Like there'd be times I hear stories where there'd be no people or it'd be raining. <laughs> yeah. and they're like, no, it's showtime. And you'd go out and you would yeah, do a show. Yeah, it, yeah, that's true. And they'd be like, uh, Mr. Greg, showtime. You're like, but there's nobody here. <laughs> you know? It's just like, ah, but uh, we want you to go out and perform. Because what if somebody comes to your show five or ten minutes late and they still want to see your show, but then they would come and they wouldn't see anything. So we want you to go out and still do the show. And I was just like, okay. Like, wouldn't it be better if I just went out and did walk around? Like, let me go find the people and entertain them, like, on a smaller scale if the, if the park is slow. But, yeah, it was very interesting. I think even one time the, the guy who was doing production would like take his jacket off, which said production of House and Bosch, and he would sit in your audience uh, and like Right, he's have one guy watch you and pretend like he was your audience for you. And I was just like, This is just kinda ridiculous. <laughs> you know? yeah, a lot of people did that gig. It was a good place to do lots of shows. I loved it. I you know, as far as like the overall experience, I loved it. I, I loved Japan. 
you know, I didn't mind doing the four shows a day, six days a week. I was there with some really great acts. I was out there. There's a guy named Lucky Bob, who's a juggler, magician guy here in Boston. And he was out there with me on both experiences. I mean, there was the first time I went out, I think it was like one of their anniversaries of the park. And so they had like seven or eight or even something, something, maybe even 10 acts out there Okay. over the three months that we were out there. And we all got along great. Second time I went out, there was only three of us. Right. And so it was a much, much less of like an interactive party experience amongst the performers. But both experiences were great. I would recommend it to anybody who wants to like build their resume and go to Japan. And Is it still going? I don't think it's even still. I think it still exists. I, I don't know if they're hiring international acts anymore. I think that they're doing a lot of the stuff in-house in Japan. So I don't know if they're hiring a lot of variety acts out of the country anymore. But I know that I was there. Niels Dunker was there mm-hmm. when he was starting yeah. out. A bunch mm-hmm. of people were there up through just yeah, a handful of years. I think Keith Eveslage, right, from here in the Bay yeah, Area. Yeah, he the second time. Uh, Buster Blackcell, I think. Yeah. James Buster, yeah. the juggler, did that yeah. gig. Well, like, everybody agrees. I mean, at a certain point, once again, there's no rules in, in right. entertainment. But most people agree that at a certain point, you have to do a lot of shows. Just crank them out to get that confidence, to get that feeling of security. Yeah, and four shows a day, six days a week, that's going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they always say, I think the, the, the adage that I heard early on was you have to do 100 bad shows before you'll hit a good one. Mm. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it was a good thing to kind of say, okay, I've done 100 shows. Like, either I still suck and it's not getting better, or like, oh, that worked. That's not working. I'm going to change that. I think after 100 shows, you start to learn what's working and what's not at least yeah i don't know if your show has to start out bad but right. well, every, every show you should learn yeah. something yeah and and i think that helps too i think in my early early days and i probably should still do it i think any entertainer should do it because i had like a notebook and i would take notes of every show i did where it's like this was the weather this was the conditions yeah. this was it was a small audience it was a small hat whatever like if you're starting up street performing or any kind of performing I think taking notes of your shows is is really good. Comics do it; they'll, they'll have like a an audio mic on on stage with them or something, or you know, videotape every show. And I do that sometimes, but it seems like my good intentions, like it's hard to maintain it. Like you do it for a few shows, then you forget the camera or you forget the recorder, and next mm-hmm. thing you know, you kind of sink back to your usual style. Which for me is, what was that joke again? Right. <laughs> like afterwards, and sometimes like you're in the show yourself, thinking, okay, don't forget that joke, how you said it. But it's hard to keep in your mind a joke throughout the entire show. If you have a good system to either tape your shows or record your shows, and after every show, go back, take notes, try different things. Because sometimes it's like people go, oh, I did a thousand different shows. You go, no, no, you did one show a thousand times. Right. And you don't learn much by just repeating the same show over and over again without the idea of growth. It will get consistent, but it may not still be working. Well, it's like, like uh, you brought up Niels Dunker, and Niels Dunker is one of the acts I work with. The idea is that there's always potential, comedy potential in every situation. So when you're doing street performing, it's very variable. Different things happen. And the people who can react to the things happening in the moment humorously, I think have an advantage over the people who can only do it by rote. Right? They right. have to get the jokes in advance. So something could happen in the audience, and they immediately go for their stock heckler response as opposed to being able to play off exactly what is right in that moment. I think that's definitely one of the things that that you can learn by doing street performing, is kind of that riffing and playing with the moment. Well, especially in the crowd build and those moments where you're not actually even in the show. There's a lot of interaction with the audience. Look at someone like a Scotty Meltzer, who's a very successful trade show entertainer and been in the business for... He still goes out to the pier and tries... Of course, he's also the organizer and uh, runs the pier. But he doesn't take any special advantage of that. He gets the same spots as everybody else. Yeah, he usually doesn't go out there too often. Usually once or twice in a month he'll go out. But sure, he's going out there. He's trying out new jokes, trying out things that work. And I mean, the beauty of doing street stuff, if you can go out and, and set a show anytime you want, it's like it also keeps you sharp and, and uh, maybe keeps the show fresh as well. I recommend to anybody who's starting out to sort of go to some place that has a street scene. Like mm-hmm. whether you become a hardcore street performer, but that kind of spontaneity to include that as part of your overall learning experience as long as you don't fall into the trap of the street performer kind of structure sometimes you see guys and you hear them they're like hey everybody i'm a street performer 
you know they have they right. blown out their voice because they they shout and they and every joke is shouted and screamed and they have this, they come across as a street performer you put them on stage and they become a street performer on stage yeah no it's true so you see that there are there definitely are traps you can fall into but to use it as a sort of an extra little thing to go out and do or to give you some time when things are slow to go out and do some shows i think anybody starting should move to a city that has street performing that's one tip I would probably give anybody that like, if you are a street performer or come from a street performer background and you're going to go and perform on a stage somewhere or a different venue, granted, like if you go and do a fair or a festival, sometimes you still have to have that kind of yeah. street performer. Like I need to attract the attention. I need to let, let people know I'm starting a, like a, a street style show here or whatever. I know that when I first started doing stagers or doing cruise ships or whatever, I went onto the stage with that same street performer mentality that you were talking about where I felt like I had to keep on grabbing people's attention and holding on to it. Because, you know, with street, you're always worried about like, oh, they could leave the show at any moment. <laughs> right, if I'm exactly. not holding them, they're going to turn and leave. Like they're going to they're gonna abandon me, you know? So you always have that kind of like, I got to keep things moving, keep things moving. Yeah. And, and with cruise ships or other stages, it's like, they're already invested in you and your show. Like, slow it down. Take the pauses. Breathe. What might be your super fast, super tight 30-minute street show like, in reality, that might actually be a 40-minute show if properly paced on a stage. Right. But also, like, even on a trade show, a lot of those tools come in handy because in a trade show, you have to attract a crowd. Yeah. So there's that build, and you have to hold the crowd. There's so many crowd-holding skills that I think you learn through the street performing that will, that will last you your entire career. Like, if you start as a street performer, you have that kind of street performer chops you do have that ability to, to be able to listen to the crowd and riff off of it or be able to grab people's attention through, because you have that kind of mentality, that know-how of, oh, I'm going to attract people through this action or I'm going to build this in this way and it's going to attract people because it's, it's a tried and true formula. I find myself jealous of other street acts too because like we work together. Like my street act is not really structured to be a great street act. I feel I'm like you. I'm always pushing. I'm always like trying to, one after another, boom, 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 boom. Then you see some performers, I think like Fraser Hooper comes to mind. I was just going to mention his name, actually, yeah. And you see some guys who are like, I'm going to let them come to me. I have this sort of pacing, this sort of internal confidence that where I don't have to go out and dance like a monkey. I can just be very subtle. And yet they attract people and they attract big crowds and they make money. Where I feel like for myself, like I'm, if I lose them for a second, so I'm like, another trick, a big trick, another trick. And it was tough for me. I really felt like it kind of burned me out from the street. But, I, but I've seen people like Frazier have difficulty as well. Sure. It's like his show doesn't follow that formula of like every trick is going to build upon the last. Shows like Frazier, it's a very subtle. Who's that? Silent Clown. The Silent Clown. That's a very difficult thing to be able to pull off on the street. And, and he's one of the best acts out there. But surely it doesn't follow that mentality of like, oh, every trick is going to be better than the last trick. And it's going to you know, end in this crescendo of my, my huge grand finale. And <laughs> Frazier does have like this really great grand finale with the boxing scene, which everything kind of builds up to. But it's not like the high, like what do you think about the sort of high technique with the idea is, okay, I'm going to put the finale up on a pole. I, mean, I, I think it does help. I, I think oh, yeah. you know, my finale, when I'm doing most street venues, I, I do the fire hands juggling is my typical finale now. And I've always thought, like, man, if I could raise this trick up off the ground, I'd probably increase my hat by whatever, 25% or 30%. But I, I've, I've always just been super scared of I, me too. standing on a little top, top <laughs> or standing on top of, like, a, you know, some of these pole acts that are out there and, and things like that, where it's just like, man, like, it looks great. And I'm, I'm sure that I would increase my hat tenfold or whatever. But uh, I couldn't do it. I tried. I even got one of those, like, Jane Fonda aerobic steps. Oh, it's only probably like six inches above the ground. And like I said, I never had a good finale, a good street finale. So I think that's sort of the thing you almost revert to, at least some people do, is sort of the Rollabola finale. Because out of all the things you can juggle on, I think standing on a Rollabola has got to be the easiest. Yeah. Compared to like idling on a unicycle or whatever. The idea is the guys who do it well put the Rollabola up. And I've seen some guys put it up on some squirrely, Little platforms. Oh, I've seen some sketchy stuff out there for sure. I don't know why. I mean, like, remember Rich Ross used to put it on this little teeny keyboard stand. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like a keyboard stand with like a piece of wood on the top <laughs> of it. And I've seen like Jason Collum, who's a juggler out of Chicago. Yeah, I know him. He like uses like a stool or something, and every like it looks like it comes to the edge every single time. I know. And I've I seen know. him. I've seen him fall <laughs> off it, so it's not like oh, he he can do it on that small little space. For me, I'd want to. I want a giant table. But I've seen people who like st- even to raise their shows off the ground, they'll just stand on a step stool. Like they're not actually even doing anything on the yeah. like the step stool, but they're just standing on the step stool. And even that seems to help. I think my favorite is I'm forget I'm blinking on his name. I work with him in Ireland. He's a magician in straightjacket escape. But he gets up on a ladder, right? But the ladder is solidly based on the ground. Like right. It's not a freestanding ladder. He actually climbs up the ladder just to get higher. Who is that? Oh, gosh. Collins? Oh, boy. I work with him in, at the uh, the one in Dublin. Yeah, at the Street Performing World Championships. And he was he was cleaning up, but he basically would just climb the ladder and, and get into the straitjacket. I don't think he even escaped the straitjacket on the ladder. He just but stood up there to like, stood do his hat it. pitch? Yep, yep. Just stood yeah. on it. Not even the hat pitch. He did a lot of things up on the ladder. Interesting. It was just a solid ladder. But it, it, was, but it had like it had like a base on it, so like the yeah. ladder was locked in to stand yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he he would he he did great. He did great. In the afterwards of this podcast, I'll find out who it was and and give him a shout out. So now we got the chance to work together in China last year. Yeah, that yeah. was our first time doing a gig together, right? Uh, of any length, I think we might have hung out at the pier a few times. Oh, for sure, at the pier. I mean, we've shared stages in terms of yeah. that, but like the China gig, we were we were actually working a gig together overseas, which was fun. Yeah, and I was there for I think a couple weeks before you got there, and then you joined in. Yeah, there was a reason why. I, I think I had a conflict. I think I was doing the Oklahoma. I was doing Oklahoma State Fair for two weeks, so I, I couldn't join you for the first two weeks of that gig, but I came on board for the second part of it. And I'm blanking on the, the second city, the, the one with the good food. What was the name of that city? It was Shanghai. Then we went to... Oh, my gosh. I, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that terrible? We were there for like two I know. weeks. <laughs> I know. Isn't it bad? Like, oh, we were over China. We had this great food experience. Where were we? I, I don't remember. Because <laughs> we, we were in two cities. Well, first, you weren't there, but we were in Shanghai. Right. Uh, and then we were outside of Shanghai. And then we, we, we went to this other city. Yeah, we had like the dumpling city. Remember, we, we learned how to make dumplings. Well, well, you, I didn't go to that one. You went to that one by yourself. Oh. I didn't do the dumpling part. But I have a question for you about the hang at, in yeah. China. Okay. One thing a lot of performers talk about in street performing and just in showbiz in general is what they call the hang. Right. For me, it's one of the most important parts of the gig. Right. Like you were talking about in Hasenbosch where there were 10 performers and that camaraderie and the fun you have right. with, with fellow performers is one of the best parts of our life. In China... I saw how the personal computing devices have really changed that. Before that, everybody would just come back. You'd play cards. You would tell stories. Right. There were times I would come back to the green room. Nobody was talking to each other. Every single person was on their individual device. Is the hang dead, Greg? What happened to the hang? I don't know if the hang is dead, but I mean, don't you think that that's part of like where society is in general? I mean, yes. look, you go on any train <laughs> anywhere and people are all staring at their phones. You go on a plane, people are all staring at their phones or staring at the the seats. Or, But we're different, Greg. We're different. I, I believe. I mean, I, I'm all about hanging out. I mean, I even just did a fair this past week in Arizona with Matt Baker. Mm, yeah, the bake. Yeah. One of the brothers from Different Mothers way back when. Yeah, him and Alex Zerby, the brothers from Different Mothers. Yeah, he's a good yeah. friend. Yeah. yeah, so he was with the, with me at this fair, and like he and I were hanging out. We were going out, hanging out for a few of the nights when we were out there. And But it, it is true that I feel like the hang, like people are starting just to be so connected that they're not paying attention to what's happening around them. But I'm all about the hang. For me, hanging out with other performers is like one of the cool parts of being a performer. It's like, you know, I can go and do my 30 minute show, 45 minute show, hour show anywhere. The show is essentially the same, right? I mean, your show is your show. Sure. There's little tweaks here and there, but for me, like hanging out with other performers, like hanging out with other acts, like whether it's overseas or a local fair, like I love hanging out with people. I, I like hearing stories from the from the road i like hearing like me too where people are going or what gig are you doing like that would be you know i want i want to hear about these things and i like when it gets rough and everybody sort of pulls together against either against management or the situation like when we were in i was in uh, south korea with matt baker oh right yeah you went to you went to south korea the year after i was there right exactly but i don't think it was the same situation we were set up on the beach yeah we were we were same 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 place it's so funny when you show up and they go okay we're going to have six stages, and every every performer, there'll only be two performers per stage, and they're all going to be spent on this beach. 
And when we showed up, they had the main stage where the Chinese opera was, and the street performing stage was about 20 feet away. Oh. So immediately they went to three stages because they realized the other stages were too close. And now everybody's shoved together on three stages. There's a typhoon coming. It's humid, <laughs> you know. And people are asking, they're getting, we, we could pass the hat for tips. But South Korea was not what I'd call a tipping culture. No, no. I, I think that they're being trained on how to do it. But yeah, the, the year that I was there as well, the year before, it wasn't huge tipping. It wasn't huge hat. We got paid a, a guarantee, but. Sure. It was strange when you do a big show and you look at the hat, you're like, oh. Oh, $20. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We've done a lot of street performing festivals, these international festivals. Which few of them do you sort of see as your favorites? Uh, well, I, I really enjoyed the the Street Performing World Championships. I got to do that one twice. I, I was there for the first year they did it, and then three or four years later, I I did it again. And now it doesn't exist anymore, right? It's it's changed into the the. It's the Layla Street Performing. Like spectacular or something, right? They've changed it into more of a. Well, they only had the competition in the first place. That he told me to get sponsorship. He said it was easier to get sponsorship if they made it into a competition. Right. Yeah, the competition was always kind of just like... It was always unfair, really, to be honest. Well, the competition wasn't really... I mean, we the first year we were even there, like it was just like, oh, like we can all compete, and that's great, but we just are all here to have fun and make money. And But I think that the idea is that when they had the winner, like they had the winner, they'd invite the winner back. Right. And then the next year, the winner would have huge shows, right. have the biggest crowds, and then they would tend to win again. Because yeah. obviously the more people who <laughs> see you... True. And so if you're an act that's getting bad stage times and you're off in the corner, you have no chance. So it's not really based. Like, do you ever do uh, uh, Shizuoka in Japan? No, I'd love to get, I mean, first of all, I'd love to get back to Japan, but I'd, I'd like to do the, 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 the Shizuoka, the World Cup there. I would think it would be great. Now, there's what they had is they had a, a judging stage. So everybody would do one show at a particular stage where they would have the judges. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty fair. But the, the reason it wasn't fair that year was because that the winners were two Chinese acrobats who had never street performed ever in their lives. Right. So it was a street performing championships, but they did like head-to-head -head balancing while spinning, you know, 12 plates and stuff like that. So they were great acrobats and they won the competition, but all the street performers were saying the, the fix was this in. This is bogus, right. It was bogus. I mean, we have a competition uh, supposedly this year in, in Cedar Rapids, a busker's competition. Oh, nice. But my feeling is more that if you have $1,000 to give away, as opposed to having one winner, I'd rather split that money four ways. Right, and which is you know, which is what we did actually that first year with the Street Performing World Championships. There was a huge prize money for that first year they did the festival out in Ireland. Right. And uh, all the performers, I think there was 10 of us over. It was just a two-day festival when it first started. And I think we were all in agreement, like, hey, do it as a competition all you want to. But like we've decided that that prize money we're going to split amongst the ten people who are here, right? And we all just got a piece of that. I think my favorite uh, situation is in Belfast, the Festival of Fools. Oh, you know, it's funny. I, I actually got invited to be there this year, and then I had to turn it down because I was supposed uh, to be in India for a gig, right. and then the India gig fell through. <laughs> Showbiz. Like, well, no, I don't have either one. <laughs> well, the, the thing about Belfast is they give you a guarantee. It's not you know huge, right. but it's okay, and they put you up and they feed you. And what you do there is you pass the hat, but you give the money back to the festival. Right. And which is nice because it, everybody's, you see another performer with a huge crowd, instead of kind of being jealous, like, oh, why did they get that spot or look at their crowd? Because I'm sorry, it's hard in those situations not to be jealous sometimes or not to be competitive. Right. If you see other people getting better spots. But it's not even about the better spots, though, but there's also certain acts that are typically always going to win. And yes. that is the act of like, oh, you've got a 12-foot pole or a 10-foot unicycle or, you know, you've got this really high act and more people can see you. And typically, I think that those type of shows tend to be the stronger street shows. And they typically are the ones who will win the competition, not the people who are working on the ground. Well, and some acts are just huge. Like when we worked with Kamikaze Fireflies in Edmonton, they would fill that square with an act. It would just fill the square. And it's hard if you're, like, competing against an act like that at the same time. There's that sort of, first of all, there's always some kind of bleed over in sound from the two shows. So a lot of acts, it's tough to compete against what you'd call the big acts. Right. Or the big hype acts. Because we have some friends, like one of my favorite acts is uh, Glenn Singer. Oh, El yeah. Glenn, El Glenn Grande. Yeah. 
But his act is not what you'd call a big act. It needs more focus. It needs more of a situation where it can excel. All the, all the little nuances and things like that. Yeah, because his act, he rides a, a horse, a, a horse puppet. Right, and, in and quotation marks, horse puppet. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I always call him the man zebra, but it's a, it's a horse. But it's, like you say, there's no rules. Right. But there are certainly acts that are sort of softer and more gentle, and they're, they're different. But you put them side by side with a space cowboy or Alakazam. Right. And you're going to have trouble. And that's just it. And, and certain acts, it's just like, you know, with my show, I know that I'm squeaky clean family guy. Like, my show right. is a family show. It's not a kid show. It's not, but it's not one of these, like, edgy, grown-up-y kind of shows. It's just like, I can't compete with the Alakazam-style show. I can't compete with the Space Cowboy. And you just it's just like, okay, I, I know where I fit within the kind of the lineup here. So it's like, oh, you're going to bring me in because I'm the family guy. You know, you want to have... Yeah. That dynamic, usually with these busker festivals or whatever, it's like, hey, we want like a family style show. We want one or two female acts. We want, you know, some sort of tall act. We want some sort of um, aerial acrobatic type show. Like there's certain things that they're typically always trying to fill one or two slots of each thing. My favorite story is uh, Glenn called me and we were talking about Halifax, Nova Scotia, which used to be a very big festival, 10 days. I think it's now down to about three or so or three or four. Yeah. And the booker there said to, said to Glenn, he says, we can only have so many acts of your kind. And if you know Glenn, Glenn's a one-of-a-kind act. And he goes, what do you mean of my kind? He goes, she goes, you know, old guys. <laughs> so I think that's sort of where I fit in. It's like, first of all, I'm very unique in that my tricks are very different. Right. So you can, you can hire another juggler. And also I have the cachet of being an ex-Raspini, you know, not ex, but Raspini brother in my track record. Right. But I'm not a big act. I'm just a, a weird act, an outlier to some degree. Well, I, I would I would call you the innovative act, though. I mean, look at the things that you're doing, and, and you try to always be creative and different. And I think I'm pretty much done. I think after China, I don't see myself passing the hat again. Now, let's talk about your future, though. Uh, what, do, what do you see? Because you've done pretty much a lot in this business. If you look at the fairs, the cruises, the corporates, the street performing, you've kind of had a good experience, a well-rounded career in juggling. Where do you see it going from here? Well, I, I think the future for me, I'd really like to get into the speaking and presenting market. You know, I have a couple different ideas of what I'm trying to create and round out. I, w- I want to create a program for schools on being innovative and, and having a creative or follow your own path kind of lifestyle. Uh, I also want to talk about, you know, because I was a shy kid, bullied and picked on a lot as a kid. And then I went on to this career. And, you know, like you said, I've I've done a lot. I've I've had a fairly successful career. So I'd like to talk about the bullying and how you can find strength and using hobbies and things like that to create a strength for yourself through that. I'd like to go into the speaking with corporates. And so so I'm looking at like a, a school program as well as a program maybe for associations and corporate events teaching innovative thinking and creative thought and then use the juggling and magic and the skills that I have to accent those points. I know there's a few people who are out there that are doing it that have been very successful with it and hopefully I can have my own take and branding with that as well. I always look at Dan Thurman as a very successful successful. Anthony Robbins type juggling performer. You also have a a gimmick. Do you want to talk about the, the sort of prop, the special prop you have that a lot of people have seen but you've sort of built a whole show around it. Can you tell us about that? Are you talking about the rubber chicken? I'm talking about the rubber chicken, of course. The rubber chicken. Because <laughs> like, you're the you, rubber chicken guy. Like, you do the rubber chicken show. About? I was like, what, what is Dan talking about? What, what do I have? <laughs> well, I was going to talk about your male exotic dancing, but I, I think it's <laughs> – let's talk about the chicken, chicken show instead. <laughs> sure. Yes, I, I always believe in branding, and so I, you know, I have Greg Frisbee comedy juggler, you know, entertainment with a new spin. But I'm also looking for different things. You know, I'm still doing the fairs, I'm still doing corporates, cruise ships, things like that. And there, sometimes they come to you and say, "Hey, we've had you a few times. Like, we or want something new. new. What's new? What's different? What do you?" A few years ago, I created this routine. I guess about four years ago, I created the routine for my show with a rubber chicken uh, launcher and a cannon. You have a chicken cannon. I have a chicken cannon essentially. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Not a real chicken, but a rubber chicken cannon. Rubber chicken. Yeah, a real chicken would be pretty uh, hard to pull off, wouldn't it? A real chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so my first rubber chicken cannon was made out of PVC pipe. It was basically a modified potato gun, and it was remote controlled. I think you and I played with it when I first created it. It was iffy. It had, it had issues. 
at first. <laughs> at first, it was iffy. It was definitely iffy. So, but the idea was to launch a chicken from the cannon, and I was going to catch it in a bucket on my head. And when I finally kind of got, and you use a KFC, a KFC bucket, or it's a KFC bucket. Okay. Uh, it's not a real KFC bucket. It's basically I, I created the bucket and made it look KFC-esque. Had to be a little stronger. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it had to be a little bit stronger, a little bit more durable, a little bit bigger than a regular KFC bucket to be able to catch the chicken properly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I started performing with the rubber chicken cannon uh, after a few months of refinement. And I, I performed it. I think the Oregon State Fair was the first fair where I kind of debuted it. In my, it was part of my show. It was really successful. And after about the third day of the fair, it was a 10-day fair, people started showing up with their own rubber chickens to the show. And I was like, whoa, like, this is weird. Like, this is something like in my 10 or 15 years of performing, that's never happened. So I started thinking maybe there's something more to that idea. And it kind of morphed into this brainchild of the rubber chicken show. And so I have an entire show now which still has juggling. I still have my ball spinning routine and a, a ball juggling routine in it. I've got a Diablo, which I'm going to have look like a rubber chicken, uh, like, a, like an egg. Yeah, we were talking about the, like the two halves of the egg put together. Two halves of the egg put together where it will look like a cracked shell. You know, I have the ball spinning routine still in there. It's got the rubber chicken launcher in there. I've got a cut and restore rubber chicken act. <laughs> and so everything's kind of geared around the idea of everybody knows where a rubber chicken is, but what are you going to do with it? Yeah, it's turned into this whole show of its own called the Rubber Chicken Show. And it's still being modified. It's still being tweaked. But again, you know, with the branding, like I've got a logo for the show. I've, I've got a whole bunch of like catchphrases that go along with the show, a bunch of really cheesy, punny jokes that go with it. And I gave you a good joke today. Don't forget the joke I gave you today. Yeah. About what job does a, a rubber chicken have at the bar? Well, he's Remember? a bounce. He's the bouncer, exactly. And why don't you take a, a check from the rubber chicken? Because it always bounces. Exactly. <laughs> so why the rubber chicken cross the road? Hmm. I don't know. To stretch its legs. To stretch its legs. There you go. See, it writes itself. <laughs> of course, some of these jokes are pretty foul. Uh, <laughs> the show is, is foul, but not foul, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. There you go. The whole show tastes like chicken. <laughs> that should be your your catchphrase. And the show tastes like chicken. <laughs> hey, well, Greg, you know, we've kind of hit our limit here. We talked for about an hour. Any last things you want to... I know you did a lot of shows last year. You did like 380 shows last year. How's this year looking? Pretty good? It's looking pretty good. There's a lot of different things happening this year. I don't have as many fairs at the moment that I normally do, but I've got a, I, I'm doing a bunch of stuff. I, I'm not one of these acts where it's like, oh, you know, I'm the corporate guy. I don't do other sure. shows or whatever like I, I typically i don't do a lot of like birthday parties anymore but a couple of local libraries like said hey you know would you just do some library shows sure. for us so i booked a whole handful of uh local library summer programs i have a couple summer camps this summer i do have a couple big fairs that i'm going to do I, i've got the south carolina state fair and so that's where the numbers all come sure you do these fairs and festivals like okay i'm doing three shows a day Yes. 10 days in a row, 15 days in a row, whatever length the fair or the venue or the gig is. It's like 300 shows. It, it adds up pretty quick. It's only 365 days. But right. like, like when we, when me and Barry used to do eight or nine shows a day, even though it was only two or three days a week, you know, you're knocking down 18, 20 shows a week or something like that. We're doing eight shows a day? Yeah. At the Texas Renaissance Festival, we would our record was 21 shows in two days at uh, Dickens on the Strand. Yeah, we, you know, we're 19 years old, 18 years old. <laughs> We used to have an expression that if the money was there and we were there, we wanted to leave together. Right. There's only so many chances to make money, especially when you're doing the Renaissance Fair circuit, because you only work the weekends. We were hardcore. The days we could work, we would do as many shows as possible. That seems a lot. I mean, I think my record for doing shows, I think I've done like six or maybe seven in a day. Yeah, our worst was the Texas Renaissance Festival. We did seven shows of our own. And then twice a day, we had to go to the very far corner and do what they called the King's Feast. And do like a five-minute or eight-minute presentation and then run back. And, and every stage was different, so we had to move to every different stage. So we did like nine shows a day on a different stage every time and do these two times we had to go back to the furthest corner of the stage. It was, <laughs> But like you say, if you get through that, if you get through the Hosh and Bosh and the, those early shows, then you get on the Tonight Show. You get the... Uh, you know, you get the, the, the seasoning, so to speak. Yeah. And hey, so did that India thing fall through for this year? Because I thought you were going to do that this year. Yeah, no, I, I think it just got postponed. Uh, I think that there were some issues around the scheduling of it. And, and so it just kind of got pushed from, it was supposed to be, you know, I locked in for three weeks for that gig now. And I, it got pushed to, I think they're going to try to do it again in the fall. Should I try to do it with you? You want to do it together? Should I try to go out to India with you? Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> do you need to get shots though? I'm always afraid of anywhere you need to get shots. 
Do you need to get shots for India? Like malaria or something? or I don't know. Like, we didn't have to do that for China. You would think it would be the same for China. but Okay, if we don't have to get shots, you and I fall in India. That sounds great. We'll, we'll have a good hang out there. Yeah, you and I, we know how to hang. And, and thank you so much for hanging out with me on the Drop Everything podcast. A big thanks to uh, Greg Frisbee, Entertainment with a New Spin. Good friend, good guy. Best of luck, Greg Frisbee. Hey, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 46 of the Drop Everything series. This one was with the great comedy juggler, Greg Frisbee. Happy travels, Greg. Hope to see you down the road. Big shows and big hats to you, my friend. Speaking of big hats, the street performer I was thinking of before who climbed the ladder was named Rob Roy Collins. I got to work with him in Dublin and Cork, and he had huge hats. It wasn't even a hat. It was a pillowcase stuffed with cash. So if you're out there, Rob Roy... Good luck to you, my friend. You're a killer. Okay, let's thank our sponsors, the IJA. Don't forget about the annual festival coming up July 10th through the 16th. And when you're there, pick yourself up a Ringdama or bring one with you. Look at ringdama.com for all your Ringdama needs. All right, that's enough, I think. I think the podcast has been over five hours long, so drop everything except when you're juggling.